How's everybody doing? I'm good. I've missed you all. You didn't miss me. That's fine. <laughs> um, no, it was funny. I was listening to Chris preach the last two weeks. Holy cow. I'm on the treadmill, his first sermon he's preaching, and I'm like, I felt like I had to have an altar call on the treadmill, man. I was like, jeez, just so thankful for that guy. And so uh, I don't even know if he's here. If you're here, Chris, I want the 20 bucks. So. <laughs> there we go. Well, one of the, one of the things that's hard about what I'm going to do today is the last couple weeks, I mean, Chris had um, some tough text to kind of preach through, but I mean, he got to preach the text that the birds wrote their song out of, you know, turn, turn, turn. That's why I don't do worship. But um, today we have the privilege of learning about oppression and injustice. Huh? Good times. Actually, I am really excited to talk about it because one of the things that I love about the book of Ecclesiastes is just how real Solomon is. I think one of the things that's lacking in the church today is just reality. Um, I feel like oftentimes what we do is we come in, you know, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing, brother? You know, and everything is just good, good, good. When we know, you look around the world and what's going on in life. It's, it's good because Jesus wins, but in the meantime, it's just rough. And what you see in this text that we're going to be in today and what Chris preached through is just an old dude, an old king, the wisest man to ever live, and he's just kind of talking through life. He's asking questions a lot of us are afraid to ask because if we ask them, we actually have to deal with them. He's an older man that's just seeking to understand the end of man's wisdom. You'll see this. He wants to think through work, and he wants to think through play, and he wants to think through food. He's thinking through all these things, kind of about how the world thinks through things, and he's just trying to understand. And, and, and what makes this book so difficult to understand is you're sometimes wondering, okay, are you, are you talking about how man thinks through this or how God wants us to think through this? And so it's a really hard book to kind of wrestle through. Not only that... But sometimes you read it and you're like, okay, this book is depressing me. He uses the word habel, which literally, it's, a, it's an automatopoeia. If you don't know what an automatopoeia is, it's, it is what it sounds like. It just, if you say it, habel, it's just this idea of, oh. And Chris talked through, it's probably not best talked about as like the idea of vanity. Maybe it could also be spoken of in, in the, the idea of it being a vapor, a breath. In other words, if you're in a cold climate and you blow air onto a window, you kind of see it for a while and it goes away, but it's just this idea. And everything that he thought through, the word that Chris used was just, it became incomprehensible. It became so difficult to grasp, and that's what he keeps doing over and over again. But in the midst of all of it, the thing almost everybody tends to miss about the book of Ecclesiastes is the amount of times he talks about joy and joyful and gladness and happy of heart, that somehow there's this amazing balance in the book of Ecclesiastes that on one end it's habel and on the other end it's joy, and I think any of us that have lived life long enough, we understand that. There's moments in our life where we're like, this is the greatest time ever in my life, and then tomorrow, this is the worst day ever in my life, we just... You can just see the back and forth and the ebb and the flow, and that's what I mean. He's just being real. He's just talking through life. And I thought what Chris did so well over those two weeks, and if you haven't heard it, I would invite you to go to the podcast. He just fit the two together. 
He put them together and showed how they kind of live. And, he, and what he did was is he, he talked about this, this God that's created everything and it has this rhythm of loss and, and pain and joy and gladness. And, and that's kind of what you're going to see when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to talk about life under the sun. He's talking about life on earth. Sometimes we think kings and things are so out of touch, man. You read the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon was not a dude that felt like he was out of touch. He told us that on many levels, he said, look, it's going to be depressing, but let me just throw this at you as you kind of read through the book of Ecclesiastes on your own. I think it's supposed to be depressing. A lot of you looking at me like, what? I think it's supposed to be because if you follow man's thinking to the very end of it, shouldn't it be depressing? If I'm living my whole life by what the world thinks and how man thinks, it should be depressing. And on the other hand, though, what he's going to do is he's going to come in and he's going to get to the very end of it, where I'm going to take you to our target here in a little bit, he's going to say, but in God, suddenly the incomprehensible becomes comprehensible. In God, suddenly life begins to fit together. If I remove God out of that, it is incomprehensible, but I insert him back in and suddenly there's meaning and purpose to life. That's kind of what he's wrestling through. Now go with me to the end of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let me kind of show you that target I'm talking about. Ecclesiastes 12. Because everything we're going to do today, we're going to try to keep this target out there for us to shoot for. Ecclesiastes 12. And go to verse 13. Now in some ways, I wish he would have said this at the beginning. Hey, before you're contemplating suicide and different things, just so you know, this is going to have a good end. Now here's what he says. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Now watch this. Just fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For look, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear him. Know him. Obey him. And then just understand in the very end, he's going to make all things right. That's pretty good. And if you and I ever want to find what we're talking about, this, this, this lasting contentment, this real meaning, if I'm going to ever get to this point, it's going to have to come. And he talks about this idea of above the sun. In other words, in order for me to begin to understand how to live this life, I've got to understand that there is a God who created everything, so it makes sense. If I want to understand how to live here, I'm going to have to understand him. That's what I'm going to have to understand. And once I understand him, then life under the sun is going to become comprehensible. Now this week, I think you would have to be absolutely checked out of the world not to realize that everywhere we go, there's injustice and there's oppression. Let me just give you a few of the things that happened. The Washington Post. On Friday, federal officials said they were investigating the shootings Thursday in Chattanooga as a possible terrorist attack, but were a long way from drawing conclusions. They said the gunman, 24-year-old Mohammed Youssef Abdulaziz, had not previously drawn the attention of authorities, save for a drunken driving charge a few months ago. Also inside of the Washington Post, a witness said, I have no clue how many bullets were fired. It was simply a never-ending barrage of bullets. Who's this guy? He was born in Kuwait, according to the BBC, but he's lived in the U.S. for several years. The Washington Post said he came from a middle-class family. 
The local TV station in Chattanooga said he was a graduate of the University of Tennessee. He had several good internships inside of his degree. Everything seemed to be going in a good direction. When this TV station interviewed people, here's what we found out about him. He was a genuinely nice guy. He never caused any trouble, according to the Washington Post. He was arrested, like we said earlier, in his high school yearbook. He started to see maybe some signs. He said, my name causes national security alerts. What does yours do? He also put this last cryptic post on Facebook. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled by your desires. This life is short and bitter, and the opportunity to submit to Allah may pass you by, according to the New York Times. An FBI official When they were asking him what happened, he said, we have no idea what his motivation was. Abdulaziz had no known ties to any international terrorism. Now listen to what the Chattanooga mayor said. This act was incomprehensible. There's our word. And at the end of it, doesn't it just kind of make us angry? I was sitting with a group of people, it was a bunch of pastors in Kansas City this last week when everything took place, and everybody came in fired up, and I'm sitting there in the background just kind of watching these pastors, and I'll tell you what we're going to do, we should just go over and nuke them all, and rah, 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 rah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say that yet. And I understand it makes you angry, but let me give you what else makes me angry. I hate that children are being aborted and their body parts are used to be sold. I hate knowing that children are being forced into prostitution and slavery all over the world. I hate that there are millions of children who starve to death every day because they don't have access to food and clean water. I hate knowing that women around the world are being forced into sex slavery and others are being physically and verbally abused all over the world. I hate that racism still rears its ugly head. I hate seeing brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries being brutally murdered for their faith. Every time I do a funeral, I hate death. And this is what Solomon's walking into. And listen to me. We as the church have to join Solomon and we have to face these things. We don't have the privilege of checking out of life and pretending like nothing's going on because ultimately, I believe the church is not just here for us to sit in chairs and go through books of the Bible and feel good about things. We are here because the gospel is supposed to land into a a world that is full of injustice and it's full of, of evil and it's full of all kinds of things that the gospel needs to transform. And this is what Solomon's going to do. In this passage we're going to look at today, he just wants us to see this, and he wants us to not be afraid to ask these questions. In fact, this is what I would say, I'm gonna, he's going to be his point. When man gets to the end of thinking everything, all they can come to is that life is harsh and ugly and then you die. But what Solomon's going to do is he's going to take that and turn it, and he's going to help us to see that actually, in a messed up world, as a messed up person, we can find hope. That's what he's going to do. So go with me to chapter, uh, chapter th- uh, 3, look at verse 16, and we're going to start to work through this text, and we're going to try to find some answers to how is it that us as messed up people live inside of a messed up world. 
I'm going to give you where I'm going to go. The first place I'm going to look at, like I've said, is injustice. At the end of the day, injustice should drive us to humility, not anger. The second one I'm going to look at is oppression. And oppression should drive us to compassion, not apathy. That's what he's going to do in here. He's going to show us this. As God's people, he's going to create this. Now, in verse 16, look what it says in there. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, what that word moreover does is it points us back into 3, 1 through 15, where Chris preached on the last few weeks. And in fact, it's pointing us back to, I think, verse 15. And if you look down in verse 15, look at the very end of it. It says, God seeks what has been driven away. Actually, that word is probably better translated, and God seeks the persecuted. His heart is to go after the persecuted. Now, why does he have it in there? What in the world is he talking about? He's just stressed, if you look back into chapter 3, that, that people are creatures of time and, and the best that they can ever do is just muddle through things and make sure we find happiness and contentment and everything. But the question that now he's going to begin to ask is, is how do people find happiness, contentment, and joy in the middle of injustice and oppression? How? See, this is what he's thinking through it, going, I know I've just written these things in which we should find contentment in life and we should find contentment in our families, but how can we, knowing all these things are going on all around us? That word, moreover, it marks a change, and he's going to now start to talk through some different things. He talks about this idea, look down in there, verse 16, there's this idea of life under the sun, and it's just full of wickedness. The story of it would be almost like if you could imagine inside of the courts, what should be, be this place of justice has instead become a place of politics. What should be a place where we care for the rights of other people suddenly becomes this place in which those who are right are wrong and those who are wrong are right. Sound familiar? See what I mean? Real life. And he's just sitting there perplexed, looking at it and wrestling through, what do we do with this? It's incomprehensible. It's Habel. It doesn't make any sense. He's trying to put a truth out in front of us for us to come to grips with it. See, sometimes the bad guys win and the good guys lose. Sometimes Carl the Christian doesn't make the last second shot. And Peter the pagan doesn't always miss the last second shot. It's just a fact. And boy, we don't like it, do we? In our own little world, don't we love to create the perfect world in which the bad people get theirs and the good people get their good stuff? I mean, just imagine with me for just a second. That guy on the freeway that's in a hurry who cuts you off, wouldn't justice be you find him broken down five miles later? <laughs> justice. The salesman who swindled you into buying a lemon of a car, gets fired next month. The person that got angry and cussed you out loses her hair that night. <laughs> Man, if we could design the world, wouldn't it be great until those rules became applied to us? Hello. The next time you lie, your tongue swells up like a potato. The next time you lust, you have bad body odor. 
The next time you spend money on something you shouldn't, it suddenly bursts into flames. <laughs> What's he saying? The more we think through injustice, the more I have to look at myself in the mirror, and it absolutely humbles me. See, injustice should compel us towards humility. What we tend to do is we tend to think in this, we understand justice, but do you understand we as humans can't handle the anger that's involved in justice? Paul would say to us this, never forget, and such were some of you. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he says, don't forget, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And all of us in here would be no different apart from the grace of God. And aren't you glad that God was patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but for you to come to repentance? We have to start looking at people differently. Like when I sat in that room of pastors and I heard them saying, just nuke them. Do you understand to nuke a group of people, even though we're just flippant and we laugh about it, is to decide to send a countless group of people into an eternity apart from God forever? That's what you want? See, when I look at injustice, the mirror comes back on me. I'll never forget when my daughter, Brianna, I always sorted through what to do with these moms that were on drugs that gave up their babies, and I used to be so judgmental towards them. One night I was holding Brianna, and she was our worst of all our babies. She was a crack baby. And in the midst of going through her withdrawal, she's screaming and yelling and sweating and just, oh, and I wanted to go. I remember saying out loud, I wish I could slap her mom. You know those moments the Spirit of God speaks into our heart and goes, hmm, Todd, did you used to do drugs? Hmm. You done dumb things in your life? Todd, have you forgotten where you've come from? Have you forgotten about the grace of God in your life? And what that does is it just humbles us. Causes us to be reminded, but by the grace of God, that's us. But in it... The question we ask, and I see this in like verse 16, is wickedness winning? I mean, that's sometimes when I hear people say the Supreme Court decision in this, it just feels like wickedness is winning. That's why I'm glad he wrote verse 17. Look at this. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. That word there that's in there is shorthand for God will not be played. People might think they're going to get away with it, but they won't. I was on a blog, and I found this. I don't even blog that much. I was out blogging, anyway. And I found this Paul Harvey story about a guy named Gary Tyndall who was charged with robbery. I'll just read it to you. While standing in the California courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez, Tyndall asked permission to go to the bathroom. He was escorted upstairs to the bathroom and the door was guarded while he was inside. Tyndall, however, determined to escape, climbed up the plumbing, opened a panel in the ceiling and started slithering through the crawl space heading south and out of the building. He had traveled some 30 feet when the ceiling panels broke under him and he dropped to the floor right in front of Judge Rodriguez's bench. <laughs> And 
injustice. <laughs> See, in this, everybody thinks they're going to slither out of it, but we're not. One day the panel drops out, and we will all stand before God. That's his point. I think in this, sometimes he judges people in this life. Sometimes he does not, but the payday's coming. Wrong will not go unpunished. We find all throughout the Old and the New Testament, no matter what it is, that Jesus Christ will judge people. In the book of Psalms, this is one of the things that the, that the psalmist wrestled through, and I'll just read it to you. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. God will get the final word. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no slithering out. There's nobody that will not face this. Everyone one day will be accountable. And let me tell you what that does is that causes a deep sense of humility because now I don't have to control the world because God has it. He knows what he's doing. Fortunately, this sometimes, and I get it, it doesn't always seem satisfying, especially when the jerk cuts in front of you that day. But the beauty of all of us in here that know Jesus Christ is we won't slither away because Jesus Christ paid the price. See, that's why the gospel is so important. One day, all of us will stand before God, all of us that are full of injustice, all of us that are full of sin, and the beauty of it is, is that when we stand before him, according to Romans 8.1, there will now therefore be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid the penalty for our injustice, and now we will stand in front of him clear. There's no slithering out because the cross wasn't a slither out. He paid the price. Now in 3, 18 through 20, he's going to bring in the second aspect of it. If the first aspect is this idea of judgment that should cause humility in our lives, in verses 18 through 20 now, he's going to talk about death. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust every single one of them returns. As you can probably imagine, there's been a lot of people that have used this to support like the idea of evolution, which I can assure you that even though some of you look like monkeys, you're not. I was talking about you, whoever said that. <laughs> the point of these verses is that just like animals, we all die. There's no escaping it. There's no getting out of it. In other words, he's been up in the judgment room of God and suddenly he comes back down to earth and it's hard because we live in a culture that doesn't see death a lot because I was talking to a lady this week. She goes, oh, I love hamburgers. I just don't want to see cows killed. <laughs> Bone appetite then, you know, it's like, wow. But this idea of death, and if you look down into verse 18, that word testing is probably this word better make clear. Now, look, let me read verse 18 with this idea of making clear. 
I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is making clear to them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Humility. You're going to die. There's injustice in this world, and every time we're confronted with injustice, we're reminded that the outcome of injustice is death, and what it does in our lives is it just brings us humility. Verse 21 He says, who knows? And now he's thinking of how man thinks through it. He's just kind of being empirical. He's weighing the evidence like a human would. We don't know from from our senses, from how our little three-pound brain works, whether a man goes up or whether a beast goes down to the earth. We don't get that. By what we can see, taste, and touch, we don't understand that. But what we do understand is that everyone dies. He's not arguing that there's not a heaven and that we don't go up or that beasts somehow, all dogs go to heaven, whatever that means. But he just wants them to get that everybody dies. It's humbling. We don't have to get angry when we see injustice. We don't have to get angry when the Supreme Court doesn't go our way. We don't have to get angry when murder happens. We don't have to get angry when there's all kinds of things around the world. We should be angry about the reality of lostness and hopelessness, but we as humans can't handle handle anger, and so therefore it should just move us to the humility that God can. So just to summarize, at the end of the day, whether it's Davy the dog or Harry the hamster or whatever animal your kid talked you into getting, We die like them. And the Bible says that it's appointed once for a man to die, and then what? Judgment. It should humble us. Now, after informing that, I'm going to skip verse 22 because I'm going to come back to that. But in verses 4, 1 through 3 now, he's going to talk about oppression. He's already thrown cold water on us in regards to injustice, and now he's going to talk about oppression. Look at verse 1. I saw again all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who, had already, who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, has not yet been and has not seen evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now don't you just read that and go, oh. These three verses, what he's going to do is his opening statement was, I'm just looking around at these people oppressed, and there's no one to comfort them, and I'm thinking to myself like a human would, they're better off dead, or they're better off not even have ever been born. Now, verse 3 oftentimes has been used to support abortion. Just so you know, all he's just trying to say, he's just talking hyperbolically, exaggerating this reality, just saying, at the end of the day, if I think like a human, this is what I'm going to think. We're better off dying. We're better off not being here. If this world is so tragic, then we might as well not even be on this earth. It's the idea of oppression. It's the idea, and if you don't think you think about it, I do, because I'm looking at my kids, and I'm trying to imagine the world that they're going to grow up in. I thought the 70s were crazy, the 80s with parachute pants. (laughs) Have you ever thought about what the world's going to be looking like in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years? It's what he's thinking about. I've thought that many times. Jesus, just come now. Now's a really good time. Please. Please. 
I've thought about my kids just thinking, gosh, what's going to happen to them? I don't think we have a clue, though, what oppression is. I think we live in an American bubble that has no clue. When I was thinking about places like North Korea, here's just some of the facts that I found. In North Korea right now, and this is just in regards to the Christians, 70,000 Christians are being imprisoned right now and tortured at the hands of Kim Kim Jong-un's government. That means that one in five Christians in North Korea right now is in jail. And we're complaining about gay marriage. In Muslim countries around the world, they can't even worship because of fear sometimes. In Iran, in 2010, you might have remembered the elections. After those elections, they began to to incarcerate Christian after Christian, blaming them for this being the reason in which everything's going wrong. In fact, in an effort to kind of create a distraction, what the leaders decided to do is, is they pulled all these people that were, that were, that were uh, uh, in these election things, they were protesting against them, and they began to single-handedly find Christians and put them on TV and begin to say, the reason that the protests are happening is because of Christians. In Afghanistan, after one official saw Christians on television being converted and being baptized, They begin to imprison Christians and threatening them with death if they converted to Christianity. In the U.S., only a few generations or so ago, we had things like Martin Luther King. At Martin Luther King Day, I remember sitting down with my kids and they asked me, who's Martin Luther King? We began to talk about who he was and why he was murdered and after I was done sharing with them, have you ever just got done and thought, how in the world did Americans do what they did to African Americans? To think that we've oppressed people because of somebody's skin color to me is just asinine. It makes no sense. It's incomprehensible. What's worst is that many so-called Christians were the ones that actually carried this out. Now, what you're going to see there when you get down into verse 1, though, what are we supposed to do? What should happen to us? It should drive us to compassion. When's the last time you just looked out in the world and cried? You know what I mean? You just read the news and you went, my gosh, this world is devastated. People are being hurt and broken. I get this email all the time about Pastor Saeed, a pastor over in Iran. He's an American that's there right now in jail. Have you ever noticed that if it doesn't move you to compassion, you start to get calloused and it moves you to apathy? While I was on the plane, I was kind of preparing for this, and all of a sudden I thought I need to look at my email. And as I looked at my email, suddenly Pastor Saeed's email is right there from Jay Sekulow. And I opened it and I started reading it. And on the plane, I was glad there was nobody next to me. I had my own row to myself. <laughs> I started to cry. He's tried to imagine his wife and his kids. He sat there praying for him on the plane. If we don't move to compassion, what starts to happen is we move to apathy. And when we move to apathy, God help us. We don't care anymore about what's going on in this world. So what do we do with this? 
I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 22. On one level, the first thing we're supposed to do with this is just actually to keep going in life. Verse 22, I saw that there's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, in some ways, some Christians get paralyzed and just say, I can't do anything. Actually, he says, you know what we do? We just keep going through the realities of life. In fact, that word that he uses there, I love it, is for happiness. It's joy. In other words, I'm supposed to go to work and find joy. Amen. (laughs) Did you know Christians are supposed to actually be like the seven dwarves? (laughs) Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. You know what I mean? It's like... We're supposed to go in there. I think our biggest problem is is we go to work thinking work is about a paycheck. Work is not about a paycheck. We were created by God to work. We were created by God to enjoy it in spite of our boss, in spite of our employees. He just says, go in and enjoy it. Now, I'm not going to have time to unpack it today because I just realized what time it is. But in 4-4 through, 4, 4 through 16, he begins to lay out this reality of what work should look like. On one level, he says, be careful. Don't become Darwinian. Don't become survival of the fittest. That work can be done in a wrong way in which I somehow think that I need to get mine. I need to get everything that I can out of it so that I can support my habit of a bigger house and a bigger car and bigger things so I can send my kids to better schools and all these other things. And he says, be careful of that. Why? Because the next part of it in 4, 7 through 12, he's going to tell them is that people that work like that become isolated. Over and over and over again as a youth pastor, I watched this as dads used to say to me, I work hard for my family, only to alienate them and not know them at the end of it. The last part of it in 4, 3, 13 through 16 is once you get alienated, you become this angry, bitter person. Now in it also, and if you look at our target that Solomon gives us to fear God and keep his commandments, I think oppression that moves to compassion is not enough. I think we're supposed to do something. Now what am I supposed to do for Pastor Saeed? I can't call up the Iranian government and say, yeah, this is uh, Pastor Todd, you might know me. (laughs) Cornerstone Community Church, yeah, I'd like to talk with you about Pastor. I can't do that. On some levels, at the end of the day, all we can do is pray. But let me tell you something. All we can do to intercede to the throne room of grace? Are you kidding me? It is a call to action for God's people to go to the one who controls the life of every leader on this planet. He brought them into this world like my dad used to tell me, and I can take you out. He controls everything. But then there's sometimes, aren't we just supposed to do something? James 2, it talks about your brother that you see in need, and you say, hey, be well, be warm, be fed. And he looks at you and says, that's not faith. I think we're supposed to actually look around and see where is injustice and where is oppression. I think we're supposed to find those groups that right now need desperately to be, to be met with. 
You can find it inside of the Old Testament. Let me give you some of the groups. Peasant farmers, also low-income laborers. I hear Christians talk all the time, and I don't even know the politically correct term right now, so illegal alien, migrant, uh, whatever else there might be. I hear them talk about them like they've somehow ruined our day because they showed up uninvited. They are human beings, and while they are here illegally, and I get breaking the law, have you ever thought that maybe they're here and it's an opportunity for God's church to share Jesus Christ with them so that they might know Jesus Christ, but we're more worried about complaining about them and whatever they're bringing into the country, the crime and the different stuff, but the Bible would actually tell us we're to love them. There's beggars. In our culture right now, I think those with with disabilities, the church is supposed to reach out to. I've started to pray this, that Cornerstone would be a church for those with disabilities to find hope and relationship. I would love nothing more than to have more and more people that while everyone else kind of looks at them and doesn't know what to do with them, that this church becomes a haven for them. The politically exploited and oppressed I look around our culture, it's one of the reasons we got involved in foster care. People always say that the hell, the hell in which these kids live in foster care, and then I would say, then where in the hell is the church? I think we're supposed to be looking. It's not as if we're supposed to fix everything. We can't fix everything, but we're supposed to do something. I remember sitting down in the student union building and two guys were talking and they were talking about what we're supposed to do and, and they were talking about the world and how it's fallen apart. And I remember the guy said something along the lines of, you know what, if I had God here right now, I would ask him, why is there all these bad things that happen in the world? Why is there poverty? Why are these people being abused? Why are they being oppressed? And the other guy, I remember sitting there, who's an older man, and he looked back at him and he shook the, his head at him and he said, you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid God's going to ask me the same question. The church is designed to go into places that nobody else wants to go. We go there because you take our life and what? You haven't taken anything. Do you understand all of you in here that know Jesus Christ? You're good. We should start praying that our children wouldn't stay around and make grandbabies for us and make us happy. I've started praying over my kids, and and even one time I was praying with my wife, and I'll never forget this. I'm like, God, send them wherever you want them. Take them all over the world. And then my wife starts praying, and God, even too, if it costs them their life, send them. And I'm like, hey. Jesus promised to man, those of us that lose our life for his sake, we will never regret it. And my hope is that at Cornerstone, things get uncomfortable. I don't mean that from the standpoint of arrogance. I don't mean it anything. I've just found when the church starts to get uncomfortable, we are impacting our world. I pray that people come in here that we don't know what to do with. I'm praying for our first person to come in and drag and watch all of us go, what do we do with the drag queen? Where do we sit them? I'm praying for the first person that comes in 
its life has fallen apart because of divorce. Not first, the next person. I'm praying for people that we get out there and we start impacting our culture and we're not afraid to go where others are afraid to go. One of my favorite images from 9-11 is the stairwell pictures. Do you remember those? And all the people going down the stairwell. Who was going up? The firemen. Does that make any sense? And I'm looking out at all of you and saying, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are the firemen. We go where everyone else is afraid to. Because we believe that God's people are called to go where there's oppression and injustice. Amen? All right. We're going to sing a song, and I'm going to give you all time to pray. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'm going to actually ask you to get on your knees if you can. I know the seats are a little tight, or maybe you've got clothing doesn't allow you to, or maybe just because of age or different things you're not able to. But I'd like us to get on our knees in a little bit. And here's the thing I would like for you to pray for. Number one, I'd like you to ask God to open your eyes to where he wants you to dive in. Now, some of you, your problem is your family, and guess what? You need to deal with your family. Some of you, it's dealing with your neighbors, it's your city, it's your country. Some of you need to leave here and go to the other sides of the world. I don't know. But just begin to ask God right now, God, would you show me where it is that there's these people that I'm going to dive into that are going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable? Maybe it's amongst people that are using drugs. Maybe it's amongst people that are doing this or that. I don't know. But would you take just this time and ask God honestly, would you open my eyes to the reality of this world so that I might be used by you to affect this world? I'm going to have Billy play when he's done playing. You can drift out if you want to stay in here for a while and pray a little longer, you can. At some point, I know we have some baptisms. We're going to baptize some people. But as one of the shepherds here, let's go. Let's go where people don't want to go. Let's dive out there. You know this, that as Christians, the happiest we are is not when we're sitting around in comfy chairs talking about the glories of God, but when we're out there in the midst of it watching the glory of God come to life. That's when we come to life. And so let's pray that God would move us there. Amen? All right, next moment is yours.